Set aside your fantasy and sci-fi doorstoppers. Sometimes big ideas come in small packages. This is Word Less. Hi, this is Mark, and that guy is Mike. Allison's not here tonight and because we decided to hijack this episode and go on our own. Mike, you're a returning guest. How are you doing? I am really sleepy today. Oh, no. I, will, I, will, I just had a really long day at work. I will, I will try to bring energy to the podcast, but, but I, I need you to know up front that I'm pretty well tapped out and there's not much there to bring. Woo! Well, we are going to do our best because uh, let, let's first of all, Let's start by saying we're going to be reviewing the short stories of William Gibson, Burning Chrome. And we did this basically on a bet. So the way this started is I was bragging about my prowess of picking short stories or picking stories that people like. And Mike, you said, fine, game on, pick something I will like. So I picked Burning Chrome by William Gibson. And just so everybody knows, normally what we do is we pick short stories. And then I tell uh, the co-host what story I'm reading. And the co-host tells me what story they're reading. We read all the stories and we read those stories in particular. And then we discuss it. For this particular story, I don't know what is uh, Mike's choice of stories. And Mike doesn't know what my choice of story is. So there's going to be a big dramatic reveal uh, when we get into the stories. Is that about right? I've even prepared an envelope. His dramatic reveal. If you guys could see it, he actually has an envelope that says dramatic reveal. I'm very excited about this. <laughs> so, <laughs> before we I, get I love, started... I love bringing prop work into an audio medium. I mean, it's, it's, it's a gift. It's a gift, I have to tell you that. So, Well, before we get started, I, I generally want to talk about the author first and the genre, which some could say he created or some say pioneered. So let's talk about William Gibson. Do you, were you, how aware were you of William Gibson and his stories before we selected Burning Chrome? Uh, I'm familiar with William Gibson. I've never read any of his stuff before. Um, I know that Neuromancer is considered the, like the granddaddy of cyberpunk. That's very true. Uh, so, do you know anything about his uh, like his writing ability or anything like that? No. Uh, again, I've never I've never directly interacted with any of his works before. Okay. So, spoiler free, without getting into what you think of any particular story, what was your general impression of his writing style after having read his short stories? Um. I had a lot of trouble finding any ground to like any ground to start from in any of these stories. It man, this was, was this a was a, read? Th this was a tough read. All right, well, let me kind of uh, before because I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this. But first, let me set the background. So William Gibson is pretty much one of the most critically acclaimed sci-fi authors to ever live he 
when I say pioneer, he pioneered things that we take so for granted today that we no longer even consider. We just consider as part of the, uh, the background noise. For example, he created the word and the terminology cyberspace before it was ever a thing. He did this back in the early 80s. So what we take for granted and what we understand to be cyberspace and information age, those are all ideas he pioneered and created. And I'm sorry, I need to take a break for just one second. So I had to take a short break to hug all of my daughter's lovies so she can go to sleep. So I apologize for that. But no, that's that's some of the best work you can do. Exactly. So anyway, so so he pioneered a lot. A lot of his books or his stories were written be, like basically from the late 70s to the early 90s. So this is right at the tip, the leading tip of where the Internet was actually what we call the Internet now was actually being created. So his terminologies of cyberspace and the information age and the way he describes like hacking and everything else like that. It's all become so much a part of the fabric of society today that we don't even consider it cutting edge, but it's all stuff that he basically created or helped help create. On the other hand, and where I think you would have found difficulties, I believe in uh, with these books is that, these books are written from a very 80s-centric perspective. And I say that for the following reasons. At the time the books were written, Japan was, for example, considered to be one of the up-and-coming superpowers of the world. It was in the balance as to whether or not the Soviet Union or the America would end up being the global superpower. Those were things that were up for debate in those eras. So uh, at that time, he predicted, for example, that, that corporations would become... Uh, more powerful than countries. Maybe he's not wrong about that. But anyway, so his all his stories are set with those thoughts in mind that those trends continued. So when you see um, Japan or Asian centric stories or Soviet centric stories, it's because he presumed that those trends would continue. So was that perhaps maybe some of the the issues with the books for you? No, that's that's a cornerstone of the cyberpunk genre is uh, maybe not the the Soviet Union portion, but the a lot of heavy uh, Japanese influence in in you know sto- the stories culture usually set in the U.S. Although with some of these, it's hard to tell. Uh, no, I've I've read Snow Crash. I've played uh, I've played multiple versions of Shadowrun. Um, you know, I've seen Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. And at least on, on that front, Blade Runner, if you're familiar with the cyberpunk genre, there is not much to that movie. No, no, there's not. So I guess, <laughs> I, I, would it be better to save it for when we talk about the stories, about your particular issues with with your issues with the writing style, or do you think we can address it now? Um, I think it's going to be a little more illuminating if we, if we dig into the stories themselves. Okay, that's fine. So, so what's your general understanding of cyberpunk? Uh, so it's, it's sort of a retro futuristic, um, the, the big cornerstones are, like I said, there's, there tends to be a lot of Japanese culture sort of 
being co-opted into the into the setting um mega corporations tend to be the actual powers where governments are if they still exist they're they're more of a a secondary not actual hold not actually holding any power kind of thing just there in name only and then yeah cool cool tech always cool tech it it seems reductive to say that but it's it really is like just one of the the cornerstones of cyberpunk is just can the author imagine a cool piece of tech then it's in it's good i would agree with that the only other caveat the thing i would add because it was understood at the time that these were being created and i think it's kind of it's definitely lost some of its meaning the punk part of the cyberpunk is that it's dystopian oh the worlds yes are always dystopian uh Sorry, I, I, that is in my head is just an understood portion of megacorps that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even think to, to just say that part. No, actually, you know what? No, I, and I appreciate that. I'm not disagreeing <laughs> with you. I actually think that you're probably right. But I only bring that up to say that the term punk has become as a way to say genre as opposed to saying a specific type of genre. Because punk presumes a certain level of dystopia. So, for example, when people recommend books to me, at least nowadays, they'll say it's silk punk to indicate just basically a book that's Asian-themed, right? Or they'll say it's hope punk, which is a contradiction in and of itself because the punk part's supposed to mean dystopia and the hope part's supposed to mean utopia. So, anyways, I just kind of, I just wanted to kind of focus in on that for a second because... I think the punk part of of cyberpunk has lost its meaning. It's just meant to uh, now it's just used as a way to identify genre. Sure. So I don't know if you had a different experience than that. Um, I mean, I I kind of take the the punk modifier to mean that like our protagonists are going to be generally speaking anti-establishment, like w- whatever. But again, that's that's so broad. Like that's most fiction, right? Like you, you, you rarely read a story where you're cheering on, you know, the emperor, right? Right. Well, except for maybe Allison. Allison like like likes rooting for like the the establishment. That that's kind of her her stick. Are you saying that specifically because you know that she can't defend herself right now? Yes, exactly. Because I'm I'm in, I'm entirely on board with that. Yes. Okay. Yes, I agree. So. <laughs> <laughs> so Anyways, I'm actually very curious to see what story you picked. So, but do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? So, I didn't have a really good handle on on these stories. Like I had a lot of trouble even just following the basic plot if okay. such a thing could be said to exist in these things. Um, so I would actually really appreciate just a sort of quick breakdown of each of the stories from your perspective because so- I don't for the most part have one. So sure. So here, hold on. And I am going to pull up the book really fast so I can just go through the storylines and just go read them. I'll read the names of each story and we can go over them really quickly. Exciting waiting for me to pull up the the table of contents. So the first story is called Source Code. And Source Code, that is a story about it's basically meant for uh, somebody who is nostalgic and taking pictures of an alternative past. 
that's really what that that story is meant to be about. Giant Mnemonic, that is a story that was made into a movie and it involves basically a courier and the courier keeps uh, basically carries messages in a memory dump in his head and he's uh, going to be killed for it because nobody wants to, to reveal what the message inside it. So the Dernsbeck Continuum, that... I just forgot. Uh, you know what? I Frankly, I forgot what that one was about right now as I sit here right now. Um, fragments of a Hologram Rose involved a hacker. The Belonging Kind was actually an unusual one for William Gibson because it involved uh, a study of aliens. Hinterlands and Red Star Winter Orbit, I kind of lumped them together because they both involve stories of uh, people on the way out of the modern society, uh, the modern society, the mega corporations in that society, and kind of what what happens to these people that are kind of like on the outskirts of society. New Rose Hotel involves corporate espionage. The Winter Market also that one involves that one's difficult to describe. That one involves a story of someone selling contraband and the consequences of it. Dogfight involves a shoplifter and him becoming obsessed with playing a video game and making money off of it. And Burning Chrome involves two ha- two famous hackers, relatively famous hackers of that era, uh, getting some uh, cutting tech art to break into a mega corporation and the consequences that arise from it. There. So those are your short synopses of those stories. Does this help you at all? Very little, but uh, I guess we'll go with it. <laughs> well, I mean, is there something I can do to help you kind of like help define any of the stories for you? Uh, no, I'm remembering a few of them now that now that I'm looking at the titles. I've also okay. pulled up the the table of contents. Uh, so yeah. Johnny Mnemonic. Yep. Uh, I'm familiar with the movie. I've never seen it. Okay. Uh, that one, I could sort of follow what was going on, but at no point did I have any idea why anyone was doing anything. Okay. Like, like nobody's motivations were, to my recollection, even sort of hinted at. Uh, and also, uh, I noticed a lot of references in a few of these things to, like, to Nazis and Aryan culture and... That seemed weird. That seemed weird to you? Seemed weird to me. Well, so he... Well, is it weird? I mean, I always think referencing Nazis aside from calling them unadulterated evil is weird, but in in, in that context, it's really meant as... uh, To actually your earlier point, it's kind of like an anti-establishment kind of middle finger to the world. Does that make sense? I suppose. Um, I did enjoy the drug-addicted hacker dolphin. That was fun. Yes, that was in Giant Mnemonic. Yes, that was that fun. Was, that was entertaining. Uh, yes. Let's see. The Gernsback Continuum had... I got nothing out of that. I read a Wikipedia synopsis of it that I don't know how they... How that... <laughs> came from what I read, like how they were able to distill that into something coherent. coherent. I, 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 I forgot it. So 
spoiler alert, I did not pick that that as my book. And that was that was the one according to the Wikipedia synopsis where uh, the guy is supposed to be taking pictures of like old fifties architecture that was like of a particular style, and then started seeing like bleed through from alternate timelines or something. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that, that was the alternate uh, alternate timeline one. William Gibson was not great up with alternate timeline stories. Fragments of a hologram rose. I have no idea what happened there. Uh, I don't remember any of the characters, any of the events, or any of the events, literally anything, except I think he threw, like, a business card that had a hologram on it in a garbage disposal? End of things. I'm beginning to think that I'm just not a fan of William Gibson's writing or at least his short fiction. Yeah. So, uh, that one, so fragments of a hologram rose, that one is actually a story about consciousness. If I recall, right, because this is the one with the, uh, he has an ex lover who basically gets uploaded into a computer program, but it's, is it that person or is it, or is the copy of a person, another thing. And that was kind of like the whole, tenor of that story okay i will take your word for it because i picked up on none of that uh okay. the belonging kind that one was actually pretty cool uh okay. that was that was the guy stalking the lady at the bar from one bar to another until he loses his job and becomes a weird bar vampire thing that she may have been all the whole time she was 100% alien the entire time, yes. Alien, okay. I, I got vampire from that, but it, I, I suppose alien also works. Well, to be clear, the only reason I, I, I say alien, William Gibson was all the way sci-fi. There was, I mean, if there were fantastical elements, they always had a scientific explanation, so it, he would never do a vampire. It would that, be is, that is vol- bold of you to suggest that there are explanations for anything in any of this. <laughs> <laughs> Proceed. <laughs> uh, Hinterlands was very cool. Uh, the concept of it, because the beginning of this, I was able to follow, which was great for me. Uh, and the, the the core concept of this is that there's a spot in space, just between Earth and Mars, where if you uh, if you Blah. You may get picked up by these, a- these alien yeah, species. If, if you do the right thing, and I'm forgetting the name of the right thing, it's like you ah, you broadcast at like a hydrogen frequency or something uh, at the right spot at the right time, and they want to pick you up, or there may not be an intelligence behind it at all, and it, and it might be just luck. There, we don't know. You get just zooped into nothingness, and then some amount of time later, you come back either dead or insane, and with either some uh, xenobiological sample um, or impossible alien tech. And then you die. And then you die. Like, yes. Uh, Insanity and or death, usually and. 
to the to the single person who follows. They only pick up one person at a time. Uh, there are all these rules, and then, uh, then I stop being able to follow it as soon as the uh, as soon as the the character we're following has his, I guess, consciousness merge with another dude. I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know what the point of that was. We can we can talk about if that if that was your choice. We'll we'll end up talking about that. Okay. Okay. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, that the red that star one, winter orbit was the next one. Uh, remember nothing about it. Did that not retain the, a thing. That was the old Soviet general and the the KGB were coming to uh, disassemble their 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 orbital uh, space shuttle and basically re-educate the people on board. Yep. Nope. None of that stuck. Okay. Uh, and I, I don't remember anything else from the rest of the, of, of the thing. So your choice of what I, what you think I'm going to pick pretty narrow. Okay. That's interesting because earlier today, I'll, I'll be candid with you. So earlier today, I was thinking you would pick dogfight. And I was thinking, because Dogfight is actually a pretty simple, straightforward story, because it involves a shoplifter who gets, they call it brainlock. Basically, he gets, uh, basically think of it as like a psychological compulsion to where he can't do certain things. And in his case, he can't go to DC. And then it kind of follows kind of like his story about how he tries to win a video game. The video game's pretty simple and it's explained pretty well and kind of like the results of it and kind of what happened I, and the reason so I, I really thought that that you picked that one because you know it involves video games it's pretty simple but then I I'm remember, like eh. I remember that one now it's it's that he for whatever reason decides like gets obsessed about the video game to the point that he like alienates every single person around him well we'll, we'll talk about that one later okay okay so but th- so I originally, originally picked it because I know you love movies. So I was like, hmm, Giant Mnemonic is probably where, where I'd go with Burning Chrome with you, right? I'll go Giant Mnemonic. But then after listening to you talk about the, all these stories, it kind of makes me think you picked the Hinterlands. I did, in fact, pick the Hinterlands. Yes! I don't know uh, that that actually counts because that was technically the third guess you listed, but... No, well, so the dogfight was something. Well, so here, dogfight was the one I picked, and I picked it because I've read these stories before. And at the time that I read dogfight, I'm like, oh, that's a cute story. My original favorite story of all this was Burning Chrome. And it doesn't matter to anybody who hasn't read the rest of William Gibson's work, but just for reference, the the main hacker character in Burning Chrome is a minor character in his main storyline who is a mentor to the main hero in his main storyline. So kind of a good kind of like taste of what the mentor did. So yeah, uh, I, anyway, that yeah. was, that was something that I picked up from the Wikipedia synopsis was that like some of these exist in like his bigger full novel universes, yeah. like Johnny Mnemonic and I guess burning Chrome. Right. And so, you know what? Let's start with dogfight. And the reason I, I, I want to start with dogfight, two reasons. One, 
It's actually a pretty simple story. Two, it's the one story out of this entire book that won a Hugo Award. So, I mean, that's, that's cool, but most awards are barely worth the, the medal they're, they make a statue out of. The Hugos for a real long time were, were very rough and a lot of politics so, in there. So awards, whether we're talking about Oscars, Grammys, Hugos, uh, the medals you get like you know, uh, at school or whatever, they really meant more as a cultural taste indicator, in my opinion. This is kind of like where the culture is at some point or another. Now, there are people that may feel differently or whatever, may have different personal views if they're like experts in the field. But as a general rule, it kind of gives you an idea of where the tastes are uh, in, in, in the culture. At least that's how I've always viewed it. So I, I personally feel like the Hugos are, are better now than they've ever been. Like, as far as an accurate... As as good as any award can be of like, yeah, this is this is the best thing that's out there right now. They're better at that than they've ever been. I'm not suggesting they're good. Right. So anyways, so you wanna start with the hinterlands then? Um sure. What do you wanna what do you wanna talk about with the hinterlands? So let's talk about So here so the basic story is that there's some, like to your point, there's a specific point in space where if you go, they have a space station there. And then they have people who are there who exist as, let's call them therapists. And they're the ones who pick up these people who end up getting sucked up into this null zone or whatever and come back mad or dying or dead. And then these people who are basically mad end up killing themselves so these therapists are always trying to help these people survive and the thing that he embeds in the story is that these therapists are people who tried to go into uh tried to go over to the other side or try to cross the frontier but were not picked up so that was the uh that was an important part of that story okay what's what's the deal with the mind meld thing so the deal with the mind mill thing is it is to give the therapist who wanted to go to the other side is to show him the experience of why these people end up losing their minds. Okay. I think William it's, Gibson might just be bad at explaining things. I think that might just be a skill set he doesn't have, or at least doesn't show in these short stories. He might do better in his longer works, but I'm not so, encouraged to find out. So here's the thing I would say regarding the my experience rereading these short stories. And it's interesting. So they're all, in terms of writing, they're all, to me, very well written. Like that he hits every comma, hits, you know, kind of hits all the the points he needs to hit in his stories. Oh yeah, the, curi- the spelling, the spelling and grammar is fantastic. Like as good as I've ever seen. He uh, he does a curious thing where he starts every beginning paragraph with lowercase letters. He never uses uppercase letters, which I, I, it's just a something he does, which I always thought was funny. He is a show don't tell author and. 
that is good in its way, but it has its weaknesses if you do that. And the only way that his short stories are fully understandable, in my opinion, is if you're completely into the genre. In other words, you've read his other stuff, which is interesting because he wrote some, a lot of these short stories before he wrote his main stories. So this is almost like him fertilizing the fields of the universe in which he plans on writing. So that's just a long-winded, a long-winded way of me saying that we that we wrote that we read or that you had me read these in the wrong order, basically. Well, no, no, because the 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 way I my personal view of short stories is that short stories you they're either well written or they're not. And the way I would say the way I would characterize William Gibson's short stories is they're they're not truly independent short stories. They're short stories dependent upon his larger universe. So without that context. There are contextless stories, if that makes sense. Sure. Uh, how about if I tell you what I liked about the Hinterlands? Because I, I did legitimately like most of the Hinterlands until it completely lost me. So let's go. Um, all right. I am a Larry Niven fan. I don't know if you know Ring this. World. Yes. yes. I, I love the big dumb object as, mm-hmm. a, as a plot device. It, it works really well. You can do all sorts of cool stuff with it. And in function, the Bermuda Triangle in outer space is a big, dumb object. And like that was that was something I could I could actually like start from and then understand the rest of the story around that. And that helped a lot. It's interesting because the hinterlands to me reminded me a lot of David Brin's works. Have you read Brin? You never read Brin. So yeah. Brin wrote this fantastic sci-fi saga called The Uplift War. And bottom line, I won't get into it, but bottom line, all you need to know is that the uh, the the universe is overpopulated with a bunch of species. Okay. So and some are way more advanced than others. So there's that hint of that in, in this story is that there's when people kind of go out and then they come back, they come back with these strange alien technologies. So I guess my question to you regarding the hinterlands and what I was struck by again, reading the story, because he hints at this, I think at the part where you kind of lost interest, I guess. Not, not interest understanding. Like why would people go out there in the first place? I mean, there's always going to be a, a subset of, of people that are going to be willing to, you know, sacrifice themselves for the, for, to advance the species. Does it sa- I never got the impression from reading the story that they were doing it for altruistic reasons. Well, whoa, whoa. At, did you get the impression that William Gibson explained fucking anything? Because I sure didn't, so I had to make up my own explanations. William Gibson was very interested in consciousness, and I think if if we look at the story, he was looking at how people understood consciousness in the context of exploration in this particular story. Like, what would motivate somebody to go explore 
he never gave an explanation for that. I don't think he intended to give an explanation for that. Man, if he intended to give explanations for much of anything, uh, he failed his own intentions. I'm going to keep hammering on this point as long as you keep trying to even insinuate that there is an explanation offered. Because, buddy, I read these words. Okay. Look, I mean, look, I, I'm not, I'm not here to convince you of anything. You have your own viewpoint, and I'm, I'm happy that you have your, your viewpoint. Um, I happen to disagree, but that's okay. We're allowed to have different opinions about it. Sure. So, uh, so in that case, would you like to talk about Johnny Mnemonic, the, the only other one that I had any sort of? No, I guess the, the weird alien vampire lady one was. I had a I had a little bit of a connection to that one, but you, you like the belonging kind, yeah. So yeah, that was that was fun. All right, so like, which one do you want? I'll be, I'm happy to talk about whichever other one you want to talk about. Uh, I mean, well, what was your choice for you? Was was that the the dog fighting one? So the dog fight one. So the dog fight one to me was a pretty simple story. It was pretty clear. So the basic story is this: the main character is a shoplifter. You can call him a kleptomaniac if you want. And so he's brainlocked where he can no longer go to the DC area. So basically his home, he's he's basically essentially kicked out from it. So in the process, he goes to this new area. I believe it's in Ohio. He uh, shoplifts some stuff, runs into a girl who is a complete whiz at software development. They call it wetware in, in, in his universe. And they become friends. She's also brainlocked too. She can't be physically touched because her parents want her to remain a virgin. They come from two different castes. He's a lower economic caste and she's a much higher economic caste. And he becomes obsessed with these, uh, these video games. It's never really explained why, but it's implied that he's making money off of it and it, and it gives him some, some type of status. So he uses her help to, to kind of get an edge of the game. And then this one guy who's a complete whiz of the game, uh, they end up with a challenge with each other. And it ends up that, like, you know, there's a drug that can help you fight and fight in the, in the video game. And there's a whole explanation for it. So he ends up abusing his friend and taking any, any advantage he can to win the game. And through the course of that, he learns that if he actually wins the game, he's going to destroy the person who he's, who he's beating his entire life. And he chooses to win because he'd rather win at all costs. And by winning, he ends up losing anything that mattered really to him. And that was the story. And, you know, that's, that's basically how video game tournaments go, in my experience. Is that, you know, second place has their life completely ruined. Uh, and and really, you do need to to take drugs, lots of them, uh, to to hit that first place in real life video game tournaments. That's definitely a thing. See, so I thought you might have liked that story. <laughs> that, that was that was my first thought. I was like, hey, look, I know you like video games, so I thought well, that one might resonate with you a little bit. Uh, not as much as a big dumb object in space. There you Got go. I, I respect the classics. Well, you know, it's like you're such a big Brandon Sanderson fan. Trying to pick a short story you like is is like its own. It's like hitting a trick shot, you know. It really is. <laughs> so, um, 
but no, so anyways, actually, I, I enjoy this story um, on a few levels. So, you know, that sitting inside of the guy is actually a uh, uh, not a good person in general. Like, what will you do? What are you willing to do to succeed at something? Whether it's in a video game in this story or whether it's something more serious, like, for example, in school or in life or for a project or whatever. In this case, like, he essentially tortures his friend to get the drug he needs to win the game. And by doing that, obviously, he has nobody left. Is success worth that? I mean, that's the question you're left with in this story, at least I was. I mean, you got plenty of real-life examples of of people who have done not quite exactly that because you know fiction but but yeah no you've got tons of real life examples of overly competitive people who have otherwise ruined their lives to be among the best at the one thing they're good at right exactly i mean and there's a lesson there right at least i would say there's a lesson there yeah exactly be like michael jordan fuck them kids <laughs> there is that you can have all the fame and fortune you want but <laughs> I mean you know uh, there's something to be said uh, on, on pulling back your competitive edge a little bit and actually like having a more fulfilling life I say that as somebody who's innately a very competitive person I, w- I wouldn't have pegged you for that a lawyer competitive what I know, you know, so anyways, it's just, it's, I, those wise words that an attorney gave me a long time ago, and I should have listened to him earlier, but he's like, you know, you're going to be a very successful person in life. Don't worry about that. But he's like, I promise you, Mark, when you're on your deathbed, you're never going to say, I wish I would have worked more. Enjoy your time here. So it's good advice. And that's kind of to me what, what the, the essential moral of the dogfight story is, is that like you can burn yourself up on the edge of competitiveness, but you'll lose the things that are actually important to you. So as, as a moral, uh, I don't know that that's necessarily a very helpful one because there are, there are specific personality types who will read that, hear the moral, have it explained to them and it won't matter. And then most other personality types don't need that lesson because they already understand it. I mean, it's not a, uh, we're not preachers. He's just writing a story. You can take the message you want out of it. I'm just telling you the message I took out of it. So, you know, I mean, whether someone accepts it or not, it's a different thing. All the, all the author can do is tell the story. All right. Did we have anything else to talk about with with well, this short story collection? No, unless you want to talk about giant mnemonic or one of uh, or the belonging kind. Uh, so I've never actually seen Johnny Mnemonic. Have you seen it? No. So that the orig- my my original impetus for picking this because I've been so long since I read Giant Mnemonic and. We haven't got to know you very well, but I do know that you are like an encyclopedia of movies. So, I'm a movie guy, sure, yeah. Yeah, so I was like, he, 
if he's probably he probably at least knows giant mnemonic so anyways i mean i remember seeing it way 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 back in the day i know how keanu reads in it and i remember being very bored throughout the movie i was just my main question there was if you if you like knew how accurate the movie was to the to the story not very yeah and i'm gonna be honest with you for until i saw the title of this story in this book i thought johnny mnemonic was based on a philip k dick that's a fair point philip k dick is like pretty much he's the 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 gold mine of like sci-fi movies right yeah that's interesting i I legitimately thought that was a that was a pkd is it just because it was a sci-fi movie therefore it's philip k dick sci-fi movie based on uh, you know a sci-fi short story that or short story or book or whatever that like i wasn't too familiar with like odds are that's going to be a pkd gotcha gotcha fair enough anyways i'm sorry that i didn't pick a short story uh novel that you were more engaged in but i'm glad that you got a chance to read it and uh, i hope you do give his longer stories a chance i mean put a a couple put somewhere in your tbd a couple of these were fun but again, I had I had so much trouble just just finding anything to latch onto to try to understand literally what was happening in most of these. Well, so one of the bigger things you're going to get with all William Gibson novels is that he is a hundred percent a show don't tell author. So he's never he will never take the time to give you exposition. It's just not his thing. He will never do that. So you've got to figure it out from the context of the story and the conversations that are being had and pick up the clues along the way. And that's just his writing style. And, you know, I definitely, his longer stories are definitely, I mean, I've always, I enjoy all of his longer stories, his shorter stories. I find them more hit or miss myself. Okay. Then let me, let me ask you this one. Uh, Neuromancer versus snow crash. These are kind of the, the two, the two core, cyberpunk beginning of the genre books, right? I can't, you're, so you're asking me to pick between William Gibson and Neil Stevenson. Yes, I am. Oh my goodness. And also to, you know, verify that I'm actually saying the correct thing and not just talking out of my ass. Cause no, I have no, read snow fine. crash, but I, 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 I've heard that, that like these two are like the, the pillars. And, and they, they were, they, I don't want to contemporaneous is probably too strong, but within a year of each other, they were out as I recall. Okay. They, they came out pretty close together. So I would call. Neuromancer is. The acid trip version of snow crash. Okay. So it, it's, it's more of a surrealist type of story. So I would say at the time that at the time that I read the story, so we're talking about the nineties, I like Snow Crash better. Um pretty clearly. But Hero, which is the main character in Neuromancer. No the, hero protagonist yeah. is the main character of Snow Crash. Hero. Because there's a hero in Neuromancer too. Is there? Yeah. Oh that's okay. 
And that may be where I'm getting confused a little bit. Because Hero is the guy that stuck with me. So I'm going to go with Snow Crash. All right. Uh, yeah, Hero protagonist. The I can no longer call him the hero or the protagonist, but he's the main character of Snow Crash. Uh, he's a pizza delivery guy, at least at the beginning of the of the book. Yeah. So anyway, so hopefully everyone gives William Gibson a chance. Even though I believe some of the stories are dated in some ways, they still tell he has he has a to me a very fascinating way of telling stories. Even if it might might not be Mike's favorite. Uh, I apparently need some amount of tell. Just just like a little bit so I can figure out what on earth is going on. Well, that's okay. Look, you know, you you have you know what? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there. I'll 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 tell you I'll tell you I'll tell you off off camera. Okay. Were, were you about off, to be off, like, yeah, Sanderson, a lot of tell. A lot of I'm tell. Not, I'm not gonna say I'm neither gonna confirm nor deny. Because oh, no, that? you're if that's what you were gonna say, you're right. He 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 over explains a lot of simple stuff that that he doesn't necessarily need to. Well, it just gets well, so maybe here I I can say this generally. So there's been a big trend, and this is neither good nor bad. This is just the way it is. There's been a big trend in the last, call it 10, 15 years, of tell your story, tell your fantasy story through a hard magic system. Create a hard magic system, and then explain your story through it. And that's pretty man. Look, and I want to say Sanderson pioneered it, but he definitely perfected it, right? And that's just the way things are. But in order to do a hard magic system, there needs to be somebody explaining it. Somebody needs to explain the ground rules for you to know what the hell is going on, right? And yeah, that's, absolutely. And that's in contrast to stories that kind of came out before this whole trend of, I need to explain the world before I get into the world. Where I mean, you just get thrown into the world and you have to figure it out. And I, I, can, I can walk you through the, the like, who he took inspiration from to form this process. Like it's about 90% Robert Jordan. Well, no, like, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I, I was just, just speaking in generalities, like a lot of books, a lot of books, before, let's call it in the pre Jordan era where you just get thrown into the deep end and you have to figure it out. And it's not that exposition didn't exist before it did exist. It existed copiously. It's just that, like, you know, when an author was trying to tell a... Oh, and I can, I can walk you through... Story. I can walk you through what that is and why that is also, if you'd like. If we've got time. I've got time. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, ultimately, it's all Tolkien's fault. So, Tolkien wrote, you know, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and they sold better than most books, right? Huge sales numbers. So for decades, publishers really only wanted stuff that looked a lot like Tolkien in fantasy. Like you, you've got definitely some outliers here and there, but a lot of it, a lot of the, a lot of the fantasy that came out for a couple of decades after Tolkien was more Tolkien effectively, at, at least on like a surface level on a, you know, soft magic system level 
and Jordan's no exception there. Uh, the Eye of the World is super Tolkien-y. Like, he dropped a lot of stuff from that book in that was introduced in that book in later books to move to a harder magic system. But if you just read The Eye of the World through, like, a find the similarities to Lord of the Rings lens, there's a lot of them. Tolkien, Rolkin, Rolkin, Tolkien. He did it. All right, and I think at this point we are well off the the reservation of, of Gibson. Any final uh, any final thoughts? Yeah, William Gibson is John, is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's fault. That's that's the takeaway. There you go. <laughs> well, I'm Mark, and that guy's Mike. Thanks, guys. Oh, wait, can I plug? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, so if you want to hear more about me talking about books, but ones I actually like. Uh, the Cosmere Deep Dive podcast is one that I do every week with Craig and Dave and Tori and we go through the Sanderson Cosmere books in publication order uh, about 50 pages a week and And I will say this I will say this I am not a huge Sanderson fan and I listen to that podcast religiously if you want to hear people who know what they're talking about a subject and just like listening to people who are very knowledgeable that's a podcast to go listen to also, if you want to do a reread, but you don't want to actually do a reread, you can just listen to our podcast, and it, it basically works for that. Right. Thanks, guys. So, bye. Okay, would you, would you guys like to now be like... Sanderson tells everything and he doesn't show anything and uh, no 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 look so uh, look uh, <laughs> I, I think I can't I don't want look I, I want this to come across right I think Sanderson is uber talented in like uh, I couldn't hold his jock straight like he he is the best selling fancy author for a fucking reason okay uh, so <laughs> My, my critiques are in a, in a distinct minority, so let's just kind of okay leave well, with all that. Okay, let's let's address. So first off, yes, he has of, of telling. He also shows, but there's a lot of there's a lot of telling. There's a lot of recapping, a lot the, of recapping. Uh, yeah, my main issue with with Sanderson is that we get. I feel like I'm reading. Uh, do you ever play Dungeons and Dragons? Okay, I kind of feel like I'm I'm getting like the wizard's tomb in like the first like you know twenty five percent of the book. Here's how the magic system works: level one spell, level two spell, level three spell. I'm like, oh my god, stop! Oh, the stop. the prologue of of Way of Kings with with Zeth. Yeah, you know it's it's a cool scene. If it were adapted, it would be amazing. As it is, it drags 